part two of the Best of Podcast. Thanks for checking it out. All of the interviews here, and there were a lot of them on Monday, July 3rd. So here we go. In this podcast, you will hear from the great, legendary Tom Lavero in studio with me talking about some boxing things that were of interest to me, and Tommy made them far more interesting than I could have. Same can be said for Neil Greenberg talking about the Caps, Washington Post writer on the Washington hockey team. Then on the NBA, we have Nick Wilson from Cleveland, Tim Bontemps from the Washington Post, Kevin Arnovitz from ESPN, and then joining us from the den, Lorenzo Alexander, my co-host on the Train with the Best podcast, which is spectacular and you should subscribe to, uh, talking about the NFL, a.k.a. his day job. All of that in this podcast, which starts right now. I wanted to keep you around, uh, and this is this is weird. I'm starting my show for a second straight day talking about boxing. But <laughs> the reason I'm starting it today is because I started the show yesterday going, I don't know a whole lot, but here's what I think. You know a whole lot. So when you saw what happened Saturday, let's actually start before we get to the result of Saturday. But the very idea of what happened Saturday, the fact that a fight of that magnitude, a, a welterweight WBO championship fight, is on free TV for the first time in, you might know the answer, I, I mean, certainly don't. It feels like not in my lifetime, and I'm I'm closing in on 30 here in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, that was that's, that's the strange thing about this, is boxing had this great opportunity, the way things turned out, to present a major fight on cable TV for free for most of the public to watch and you know boxing like it often does it shoots itself in the foot now i don't think it shot itself in the foot to the extent that other people do but still i mean what the people coming away from watching that fight saturday night between manny pacquiao and jeff horn is that boxing's a disaster that was the takeaway from that and that was not the narrative that you would hope to come away when you have an opportunity to present your product to a larger audience yeah, and you had not just that, but you had ESPN's loudest voice, well, with their loudest voice in Stephen yeah. A. Smith and yeah. uh, their loudest boxing voice, uh, who's incredibly knowledgeable in in, uh, in Teddy Atlas, saying, this is not right. This is, it, you know, going as far to say it's either incompetence or corruption, and there's no way that there's this much incompetence. When you watched the fight on Saturday night, presuming that you did. Yes, I did. Uh what what was your thought on when what what did you think the result would be? Did you think that Pacquiao had, had decisively won that fight like like Teddy Atlas did? No, I didn't. I thought Teddy Atlas was was way over the top in his criticism. I thought it was a much closer fight. I scored it one fifteen one thirteen for Pacquiao. I thought Pacquiao won, but I thought he won a close fight. I thought he gave away a lot of rounds early in the fight. I thought Jeff Horn was much more the aggressor throughout the fight in that. So. For the two judges who had it 115-113 in favor of Horn, I don't have a problem with that. Mm. That's that's a close fight. I mean, you know, I, I thought, you know, I so, like, I didn't have a problem with the decision. The 117-111 judge, I thought, was way off base. I thought it was much closer than that. So I thought Pacquiao had won in part because I figured that Pacquiao is going to get the nod. Even in a hometown situation there, you know, being an Australian fighter fighting in Australia and, but but Pacquiao never does. There have been several instances throughout his career where you would think like the star would be protected, but Pacquiao was probably robbed far worse in his first fight against Tim Bradley right. a couple years ago when the judges gave Bradley the, the decision in that. 
I didn't think it was the outrage that people thought it was. And in part, I think people are outraged because Manny Pacquiao is not the fighter that they fell in love with anymore. He's just not that guy. I mean, for for this to be such a competitive fight against a journeyman like Jeff Horn shows you that, that Manny Pacquiao, Manny Pacquiao's career is pretty much close to over, if not over. Yeah, it's. I mean, look, we're no, no, none of us are as young as we used to be, and that certainly <laughs> is true for Manny Pacquiao. Although you're 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 uh, you're younger than you used to be. Yes, you got I a am. New knee. Yes, yeah. I am. Look at look I'm at going Tommy backwards. Go. <laughs> um, get, let's let's even back up farther than that. The idea of scoring a boxing fight. You, you said you scored it yourself. Yes. How does one score a boxing fight? Because I feel like a lot of people listening probably don't know. Like, how, why is 115-113 close, 117-111 not? How, how, how does that work um, in, in your own, in, in the way you score a fight and how fights are scored in general? It's the most subjective thing in all sports. You can look at, uh, you can look at two fights. You can look at a fight twice and see two different fights. Uh, I mean, because, you know... I mean, punches, they, they happen so quick. And I'm not a big fan of the punch stat numbers. I think that's a misleading crutch to use in terms of deciding a fight. It's a tool, but it's not the be-all, get-all tool that some people would have you, you know, believe. Uh, again, it's effective aggression. You know, how effective was Pacquiao in the punches he threw? Uh, you know, did he push the action? There's all kinds of subjective uh, issues that some people place more value on than others uh that's why again boxing judging can be so difficult and tv announcers have so much of an influence over the perce- public perception of boxing hbo has it with and i think jim lampley's the best but if jim lampley sees a fight a certain way that's the way the public is going to see it even if that may not be the case so i mean i'm looking for things like effective aggression i'm looking for things like who who, who took the fight to who? Uh, I don't give, I don't like to give a fight, a, an award, a, a, a victory to a guy who's backing up. You know, mm. I, just, I don't like to do that. Now, some people would disagree with me. It's, it's one of the harder things to do. Uh, but, you know, you should be within a close period, one side or the other. 117, 111 is too dramatic of a difference in a fight like that. It was a close fight, despite the, uh, the outcry. And so you take all those factors, come up with a number score per round at a... Yes, 10-9, 10-9. If somebody gets knocked down or really beat real bad, it's a 10-8 round one way or, one way or the other. And uh, let's, I, I, at ringside, I've, I've covered hundreds of, of fights over my career. And the most asked question at press row at ringside is, what was that punch? That's how quickly things can happen. I mean, you're sitting there, you're, you're looking at it, you're trying to take notes at the same time, and, you know, you might, I mean, in a blink of an eye, you can miss the punch. So you turn to the other guy and says, what was that punch? That's how hard it is to, to judge, let alone write about. Tom Lavero in the studio with me, Craig Hoffman, here as we start uh, in for Grant and Danny today on The Fan. Tommy's st- sticking around for one more segment after he just wrapped up with Andy Poland. Don't miss those guys again tomorrow morning for July 4th. Uh, so bigger picture moving forward. Obviously, the next big boxing fight is is Mayweather McGregor. We well, know that's we, not a boxing fight. That's well, a circus act. Well, yes, it, it is a fight that will be boxed yes. somewhere <laughs> below a circus ring. Uh, uh, but generally speaking, with Mayweather, Pacquiao, their careers 
coming to a close or perhaps over. Um, what What is the next big thing for boxing? What does boxing need to do moving forward to try to regain some of the territory it's lost? Because, look, people are still interested. I'm always amazed. My Twitter timeline during a fight is always yes. consumed. People are interested. But to, to take more of the terrain and for it to feel bigger um, as opposed to these events that just pop up every, you know, three, four times a year, can it get back to something greater? And what what would need to happen for it to get there? Well, I'm not sure it can ever get back to something greater. I think it is always going to fall into that event category, you know, from time to time, depending on the fights. Like you've got Triple G coming up, mm-hmm. uh, Golovkin versus Canelo Alvarez in in September. That's going to that's going to be a big fight, uh, but it won't be as big in the public eye as McGregor Mayweather. That that this fiasco that's coming up, <laughs> in, you know, in, in, in August. Uh, again, it would take a dynamic personality and in particular, a dynamic, powerful heavy, American heavyweight. If you get an American heavyweight with credibility that people can get excited about, a Mike Tyson clone, for lack of a better description, that uh, the heavyweight division can really drive interest back in the boxing. Now, you had the 80s, you had the great you know, lower weights of Ray Leonard and Duran and Hagler and Hearns. And that covered for the post-Ali pre-Tyson era. But that's that, those are hard to come by, that many quality fighters at that point. So, look, I mean, boxing, you know, you know, in a strange way, though, like locally, boxing is very, is, is, is on the upswing here locally because of the presence of the MGM Grand now, mm. the MGM National Harbor, where they've had three like nationally televised boxing shows. You have four local world champions here. So right now in Washington, boxing is on the upswing, but it's always going to be erratic. It's always going to be sporadic. And I think it will always be event driven. And if people are upset about watching a fight for free, when Randy Pacquiao can see we got robbed, I can't wait to see how angry they are come in <laughs> August when they spend a ridiculous amount of money to watch the farce that will be Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. Tommy, I always appreciate getting, appreciate getting to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for having me. That's Tom Levero, everybody. I'm Craig Hoffman here in for Grant and Danny on 106.7 The Fan. We're talking caps with Neil Greenberg of the Washington Post and our very own Crashing the Net next. Capitals uh, have had an interesting couple of weeks here with the expansion draft and then some trades, some re-signings. And the, this, the, some of the quotes that have come out uh, from some of their management are interesting, too. Do you think that as we look back at what the Caps have done over the past two weeks, that they have taken a step back from where they were last year? Not that they're not going to be a contending team, not that they're still not good, but they, are, they have taken a step back for the first time in an offseason in a number of years. Without a doubt. I mean, you look at the loss of Justin Williams, you look at the loss of Nate Schmidt, Carl Alsner, and Marcus Johansson. Um, those are four everyday National Hockey League players that contributed. I mean, Marcus Johansson, 20-goal scorer, Justin Williams, clutch performer, um, and it's they're going to have to rely on some younger guys, right? Burakovsky, Jacob Rana. Um, they're going to have to finally see Tom Wilson take this next step forward, which um, it seems like the, the organization has been waiting for since they drafted him. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, they probably are still a playoff team, but I don't think that they're going to be the powerhouse that we're used to seeing over the years past. Which one of those four guys that you just mentioned do you think they wind up missing the most? 
I'd probably say Marcus Johansson. Um, he was a he is a young forward. You look at the draft class that he came out of. He's one of the top scoring forwards out of that draft class. Um, that draft class includes like Ryan O'Reilly and John Tavares, two two very very good NHL players. And there was always this. Always the talk of Marcus Johansson kind of being a passenger with um, Alex Ovechkin and Nicholas Backstrom, but he was he was one of the better skaters on the team in terms of getting the puck um, through the neutral zone into the offensive zone, and I think that that's where they're going to miss him the most. Same thing with Nate Schmidt um, on the on the blue line; he was a very gifted passer. But I think Marcus Johansson is probably going to be um, the the key cog that they miss, not because he's irreplaceable per se. He's just a very good NHLer, and we don't know for sure that the guys like Burakovsky and Rana um, can can make that next step. And I and I don't think that Tom Wilson can. So it's going to be interesting to see who rounds out that top six depth because uh, Washington can't bring in anybody else from the outside. Part of sports is you try to make moves to get yourselves in to maximize your championship potential when you have that caliber of team. And obviously the Capitals the past two years, President's Cup trophy winners, have been that caliber of team and have made moves such as the Kevin Shattenkirk trade, knowing this might be for one year, but if we can win a title, it's worth it. With that said, are there any things that the Capitals could have done differently or should have done differently, in your opinion, to not have such a changeover this year in their roster that maybe could have saved one or two of these pieces? I don't know. I, you see, you can't, I don't think that you can fault the organization from for where they got to this point. They had arguably the best team from top to bottom in the NHL, certainly in the Alex Ovechkin era in Washington, and looked every bit of a cup contender during the, the regular season heading into the playoffs. So that that you can't fault. But I have I have three major questions for, for the front office of Washington. Number one, um, they had to have known the 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 financial commitment it was gonna take be, to get Kuznetsov and Dmitry Orlov back in the fold and what that meant um, for the organization, especially um, in terms of re signing Oshi. So that's number one. Number two, did they make a mistake in not protecting Nate Schmidt and 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 paying the the the, the penalty or for what, however you want to call it for Vegas to select uh, Grubauer instead of Nate Schmidt, should they have paid the first round draft pick? I mean, I, I can go either way on that. But the last thing for me is. Again, if knowing what it was going to cost to to keep Oshi and Orlov and Kuznetsov, or at least having a good feel for it, um, should they have traded Marcus Johansson before the expansion draft? I mean, was what could have his value have been higher? Because once they once the team signed Oshi, once the team announced the the deal for Kuznetsov, um, you know, it was it was very clear to anybody the dire straits that this team was in. So I think it, the the off season has been mismanaged, almost uh, undoing all the the positives that we saw leading up to this point, including the playoff loss, because I do think Washington was very talented from top to bottom. Neil Greenberg of the Washington Post with me, of course. He is also host or co-host of Crashing the Net here on The Fan. I'm Craig Hoffman in for Grant and Danny today. So now if we look at what's left, what is the biggest thing that Washington needs to do between now and training camp to solidify this roster? Or is there anything they can do uh, beyond just hoping that someone in training camp steps up and it's fairly obvious that, that a young guy is ready to play that we might not have foreseen? 
Yeah, they're going to have to look inside because they just don't have the money to go out and get any sort of um, impact player that can help. Um, so you're looking at uh, Andre Burakovsky, you're looking at Jacob Rana as the two the two players that are going to have to take a a very big step up into the top six. Um, again, I, I I haven't seen any sort of offensive game from Tom Wilson over his what four years, three years in the NHL now um, to suggest that he's ready for a top six role um, or any role besides uh, just fighting. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. I think. Obviously, Orlov and the um, Niskanen pairing is going to stay together. Um, I think uh, Brian McCollum said that uh, Brooks Orpik was going to be with a young defenseman, um, most likely in sheltered minutes going against maybe the, the third or fourth line of the opposition. Um, and then you have to see John Carlson. I mean, I think John Carlson's another guy that needs to take a big step forward. Um, he's one of these offensive defensemen. He's, he's fairly sound defensively. Um, I think... People were expecting him to be more of a Norris candidate than just kind of a fringe top four pairing defenseman. Um, so the Caps are going to need a lot more from him as well in this upcoming season. Uh, I just saw a tweet from Tarek El-Bashir. Um, and I, I think I heard this this morning in one of Pete Medhurst's updates as well. Um, the Caps did make a couple of signings, and I believe this is one of them that, that has been announced already. Uh, Devontae Smith-Pelly. Um, and I know he's had some success in Anaheim and, and played some big playoff minutes for them. Have any of these these newer signings that have kind of flown under the radar, like do you expect any of these guys to really be contributors for them uh, next year? I mean, they're going to have to contribute in terms of minutes. It, it remains to be seen how how good they're going to be and, and who they're skating with, right? I mean, if if they're skating with Alex Ovechkin and Nicholas Backstrom, that in of itself is enough to to boost the production of a young player if they if they can find some chemistry. Um, if if Barry Trotz decides to split Backstrom and Ovechkin on two different lines to give two different scoring lines, um, you know, who plays with Oshie, who plays with um, with Ovechkin, who plays with Backstrom, because playing with Backstrom is much different than playing with Ovechkin. So we have to see how the chemistry lies there. I'm not really sure. Um, again, it's going to be tough. I mean, you you look at, you know, Marcus Johansson, even a 20 to 25 goal scorer in the NHL is a is a, a rare commodity. Um, so I'm, I'm hesitant to say that someone can jump right in and provide that level of production but um, you know the Caps have two decent prospects in Burakovsky and Rana hopefully one or both of them can pan out otherwise this this franchise might be in some big trouble Neil Greenberg you can follow him on Twitter at N Greenberg always appreciate your time man you're always great when you come on with us uh, and we'll do it again uh, as we move towards training camp sounds great thanks for having me on of course, that's Neil Greenberg crashing the net here on The Fan and a writer for The Washington Post. Uh, as he says on his Twitter, pi- tw- Twitter profile, I'm a geek, not a nerd. Very good with numbers. Very good with numbers, but he's a geek, not a nerd. Get it right. My pal Nick Wilson from our sister station, 92.3 The Fan in Cleveland. One of my other employers. Got to be on their fine station last weekend, which was a lot of fun. He's going to join me to talk about the breaking news that Chauncey Billups is not going to accept the Cleveland Cavaliers president of basketball operations job, what that means for them moving forward and kind of the offseason they've had as a whole. Nicholas, hello, sir. How are you? 
Oh, always enjoying the 24-7 circus that is the Cleveland Cavaliers. So, you know, it was, it was interesting. I was, I was ready just to settle down, have a nice little four-day weekend here. And uh, then Saturday happened, and the uh, the fall apart with the Kevin Love trade. Then you go to Sunday, they signed Jose Calderon to be their backup point guard, who is somehow worse than Darren Williams was last year. And then today... Surprise! No GM. So it has been just a dumpster fire of weekends uh, for the the Cleveland Cavaliers. But I got to tell you, it's good uh, roasting s'mores weather, so I can't complain too much. Yes, s'mores are excellent. You, if you were here in DC, you could roast them outside because it is it is just flames coming from the sun, which I guess is what comes from the sun, but it feels like it's much closer. Um, Nick, host of the Nick Wilson Experiment Nights on 92.3 The Fan. All right, so let's let's start with the Billups news. Let's start with what's fresh. Does this in the long term matter? And do you think that Dan Gilbert would have made the move uh, with David Griffin if he didn't think Chauncey Billups was coming? Because it seemed like that was preordained in a way, and now obviously we knew it was not. Yeah, I think Dan. Uh, I think Dan got a little bit of ahead of himself. I think he thought, "Why would I pay seven million dollars a year for a GM that maybe maybe I have friction with when I can go out and get a guy who I love and respect and who you know he's been chasing ex Pistons players for a long time. He had an infatuation with Joe Dumars. Who don't be surprised if that name pops up again in this search. So uh, I think he felt that he was going to be able to land Chauncey and. The reality is, you know, we can debate how much a GM matters, but I can tell you that three deals have now fallen through for the Cavaliers since David Griffin was no longer the GM. Since it's just been Dan Gilbert and Kobe Altman. And that was a trade on draft night for a second-round pick. That was the the Kevin Love deal. And and then there was a third deal that is kind of striking off my mind at the moment. But I can't tell you definitively that David Griffin would have pulled those deals off. But I can tell you that having a seasoned negotiator who would have been able to smooth over some of the fears, I do think that would have changed things. You know, I think that gives you a better chance of being being able to pull off and maybe wrangle in another asset. So, you know, we as long as they find a guy here shortly, I don't think it's terminal. But you did just miss a window on trading your only real asset here and turning him into a player or two who might have given you a better chance to beat Golden State next year if, in fact, you go back to it, back to the finals for the fourth straight year, and that would have been Kevin Love. You know, with Denver signing Millsap, with Phoenix deciding to go all young and kind of, it sounds like they're going to be doing a complete remodel, try and sell off some of the veterans. It's not a good look. And and now when you also have reports of Dan Gilbert trying to sell off Amon Shumpert so he can save some money on the tax bill, you know what? they got to hire somebody soon. But it's a bad it's bad optics for an organization who people should be talking about making three straight finals and not, hey, is LeBron going to leave because Dan Gilbert is just going rogue over here? Which leads beautifully into the next question. Nick Wilson of 92.3 The Fan in Cleveland with me, Craig Hoffman, in for Grant and Danny on 106.7 The Fan. Um, How much of a buffer was David Griffin, who LeBron seemed to very much like, uh, between the player and and Dan Gilbert, the owner? Uh, I think he was a huge buffer. As a matter of fact, I think he was. That's the only reason why I bought into Chauncey Billups. 
is a Chauncey Billups. We know for a fact he has uh, the love of Dan Gilbert. He has the respect of LeBron James. So in terms of somebody who could be that buffer between those two points of friction, I, I don't think that I don't think that, that those two guys, I don't think Gilbert and LeBron have a relationship. And I think that, that the, the whole point of the GM spot in Cleveland is to be some sort of mediator. And, you, and you've seen it before. You know, I mean, when LeBron has called out the front office, I don't think he's been calling out Griff. I think he has been maybe chirping at Dan Gilbert, whether it was about moves they didn't make, re-signing Della Vadova, signing Michael Beasley last offseason, or, or even previous years. I don't think that was ever about the front office in general. I think it was directly at Dan Gilbert. And, and so even though I know people can say, again, what, what did David Griffin do? He spent a lot of assets. His ability to navigate those tricky waters between the non-existent relationship and and essentially bridge that gap between self-interested billionaire and uh, self-interested millionaire, (laughs) I I think he was worth every penny. So, yeah, I think it was – I don't think you can quantify how much that relationship actually means between LeBron and Dan, like somebody to actually work between the two guys. Because, by the way, they're both impossible. Yeah, the, of course, the difference being that LeBron is worth the impossible and Dan Gilbert, while he has been great for the city of Cleveland in a lot of ways um, beyond the the franchise, he's still a rich billionaire owner that is rather replaceable. There are other rich billionaires. There's only one LeBron well, James. And, and you know what's fascinating about that? I love that you pointed out the thing about all the things that Dan Gilbert has done for Cleveland. Because I'm, I'm not trying to take down a legacy here, but I just want to point out Dan Gilbert is a self-interested billionaire. Like, people can talk about that casino. Yeah, Dan Gilbert, of course, he didn't make a single cent off that casino, right? Right, right. Or or we can talk about any of his business dealings. Oh, he did this out of the goodness of his heart for the city of Cleveland and not because it made him a billionaire for the tenth time over. That is fair. That is fair. Uh, Nick Wilson of 92.3 The Fan with me here on 106.7 The Fan, 92.3 The Fan. Of course, in Cleveland. All right, uh, let's wrap up with this thought. Is there any move, which I guess the move would be Gordon Hayward to either Boston or Miami, where you would not have the Cleveland Cavaliers as the decisive favorite in the Eastern Conference next year, despite all of the chaos we have spent the last 10 minutes discussing? Uh, It would have to be a move on on the on behest of the Cleveland Cavaliers. If the Cavaliers traded Kevin Love just to trade him, meaning that all the teams that could offer you uh, above and beyond the value that, that maybe you want for a guy like that, if they went to just say, you know what, we got to make a move. If Dan Gilbert did what Dan Gilbert does, which is be a reactionary human being and make occasionally uh, trigger-happy moves, uh, that could knock the Cavs out. I, listen, uh, all apologies to the Hayward family. Gordon Hayward is a really nice player. I, I dare say on the edge of greatness even with some of the things he's been able to do in Utah, the way he's been able to evolve, he isn't the difference maker in Boston. I, I think to have a difference maker in Boston, you need one of the true difference makers in sports. And that means Anthony Davis. That means Paul George. That means Jimmy Butler, LeBron James, those kind of guys. I think and next year, Gordon Hayward takes uh, Eastern Conference Finals with Boston from, uh, I don't know, a five-game series to maybe a six-game series, if you're lucky. The reality is the Cavaliers 
Uh, they still should be. This has never been about the East. This offseason has never been about the East. It has been about how you can make yourself better against Golden State. So, And people keep lauding, hey, the Cavs got better because the East got worse. No, because that's not who you're really fighting against anymore. It, they, they lost one game in the Eastern Conference playoffs last year. The worst thing they can do now is now try and panic, and I think that is where Kevin Love, that being the one move that could screw them over because – he is more valuable to that team than anybody notices. Like when we talk about what can make the Cavaliers better, we're talking about adding Paul George. Realize that Paul George is one of the 10 best players in the NBA. So I just think that any sort of reactionary movement around Kevin Love, that's the only thing that can really sway the East for, for anybody else. Makes sense to me. Uh, tell everybody out there I say hello. Keep Fontana in line, and I will talk to you soon, my friend. Oh, we always got to keep Fontana in line, and I'll make sure to give everybody the old hi, hello for you, buddy. I want to talk to you a little bit about something I talked about on my show yesterday, and that is the strategy that Kevin Pritchard uh, took with the Paul George trade. Obviously, as everybody knows, he trades Paul George to Oklahoma City, gets back what seems to be not a whole lot in return, and there are all these rumors and reports that, uh, that Boston was ready to offer more and that uh, he wasn't real keen, he being Pritchard, the executive in Indiana, uh, wasn't real keen on, on trading him to Boston or Cleveland or L.A., and was essentially playing defense in a way. What do you think, well, first of all, do you think those reports is, are accurate based on what you've been able to find out? And two, what do you think of that strategy of playing defense with an acquisition as opposed to just acquiring the most that you can in return? I mean, I think I think assuming anything about offers from other teams in these kind of situations is always a dubious act because you never quite know uh, what everyone is going to offer, and, and you never quite know what the circumstances are around those offers. You know, sometimes offers sound a lot better than they actually turn out to be. But I, I think when you're looking at, uh, I think when you're looking at this situation, um, the, the confusing thing about it, regardless of how much Pritchard got back, uh, was the timing of the deal. Um, you would you would think that that offer from the Thunder was never going to go anywhere. Uh, you know, it's it's such a um, it's such a uh, it, it, it wasn't exactly a yeah, it wasn't exactly. I was trying to think of the right way to put it. It wasn't exactly a, a, a you know a Titanic offer, and uh, and those guys weren't going anywhere. You know, they're under contract. They're going to be on the team. Um, so so there was no there was no reason to rush uh, uh, into making such a move. So you know. It, it, that was the part that confused me. It was that why, why for Kevin Pritchard to jump in to, to make that kind of a decision immediately when you clearly have a window to make that kind of a move without anything, uh, without anything changing and that move going away. Yeah, that didn't make any sense to me either. And obviously, a big part of that was that Boston. Uh, who wanted to get involved, we think, um, we needed to, to figure out what they were doing with Gordon Hayward first to make all the math work. Were you surprised? Right. And, and so with, with that, do you think that Boston would have, like, how, how do you think that communication goes between Boston and Indiana that Indiana winds up going, nah, we're not waiting. We're just going to take this mediocre offer uh, because it's available now. Like that, It sounds like you don't really know because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you either, but what, what's your best guess? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think – I mean, look, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to exactly understand the motivations here. I mean, Kevin Pritchard was telling people he was going to wait to make a trade, and then, uh, you know, then all of a sudden he – then all of a sudden he made a trade, you know, like it kind of came out of nowhere. Nobody was exactly expecting 
this trade to happen when it did. So, you know, it, it's, it's, you're never going to exactly know what the motivations are for a deal like that. But, yeah, it does seem like he didn't want to send him to the Eastern Conference. And, you know, he got an offer that he liked from Team Out West and he moved him. But, you know, again, this is, this is the situation that you get yourself in when you don't have much leverage and you, you decide you have to make a trade. I think it's similar to what happened with the Bulls, Jimmy Butler. You know, the Bulls, that was the best offer the Bulls got. I mean, the Celtics, the best thing the Celtics offered in a package for Jimmy Butler was their own first-round pick next year, which is going to be a pretty terrible first-round pick. So, you know, it's it's not like it's not like the Bulls were overflowing with offers. The problem was they didn't have to make a trade then, but I think they got in their heads that they decided they had to blow up this team and start over because the, the status quo wasn't going to be acceptable. And so, you know, when you put yourself in a position where you feel like you have to make a move, all of a sudden, that allows you to get your head twisted around to where you make a decision like the one that the Pacers did or the one that the Bulls did, that once you have a chance to sit back and think about it, probably wasn't the move that needed to be made when it was made. Yeah, for especially for the price that it was made for. Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post with me, Craig Hoffman, here on the Fan In for Grant and Danny today. All right, local team. Wizards have a couple of things floating out there. One is the John Wall contract. Two is the Otto Porter contract, which they are in a much bigger waiting game. I mean, I guess they're in a waiting game with both. They have, The ball is out of their court. I guess with Otto, they could just go ahead and extend him a max offer. But what what is essentially Otto Porter waiting for at this point, um, having already received an offer sheet with the most money he can see on it? Well, I mean, look, I, I think, you know, this all comes back to whether Ted Leonsis is willing to pay the luxury tax. He's one of three owners in, or if one of the, the Wizards are one of three teams in the league, along with the Hornets and the, the Pelicans that have never paid the tax. And, you know, I need to see that Ted Leonsis is going to pay the tax before I assume 100% that he's going to max an offer for Otto, or, or match a match offer for Otto. I you know the Wizards have said all the right things, that they're going to keep him around, and you know, they intend to match any offer he gets. But, you know, at the same time, you know, they, they don't have a deal yet, and Otto has, some, you know, has probably one max offer and could have multiple by the time he's done talking to teams. So, you know, at that point, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, I think you have to at least leave open the possibility that the Wizards aren't going to match it. Um, you know, and then from there, you know, if they don't, then it's, it's really going to be a situation where they're going to have to prove that the flexibility they get from not matching him was worth more than the possibility of matching him. You know, I mean, that's, and that's going to be a tough proposition yeah, well, for them. Not that's what I wanted to ask you real quick, though. Tricky. What, what I wanted to ask you, though, is, like, if they don't match him, what do they? How quickly do they gain flexibility? Because it's not this year. It's not like all of a sudden that money is available for someone else. They're signing him not right. only going over the going over the cap line, but as you mentioned, the tax line. And not to just poo poo that out of the way, but that's Ted Leonsis's money, not mine. I'm concerned about building the basketball team as as an analyst here. Right. Um, so how right. quickly does that decision pay off in a basketball sense if they do decide, eh, maybe not. That that's that's not where we want to spend that money. I mean, it's hard to know, honestly. I mean, it, it's it's really you know that it, it's it's really hard to know what that what the, where that flexibility would come from. I'm sure they would. I'm sure if they don't max him, what they're going to say is that they didn't want to lock themselves into that kind of a payroll. But you know, at the same time, they 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 threw out a ton of money last year to a whole bunch of guys, um, and you know, if they turn around and don't match uh, Otto on a deal, they can keep him around with a team that. You know, has had you know probably the, has easily had the best four year stretch. You know, even with the one down year two years ago, of of any Wizards team since the 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 Warriors of the seventies. 
No, I think with John Wall with two years left on his deal, you know, looking at potentially going into free agency, he's going to look at that and see it and, you know, I think start to question what the direction of the team is. Do you have any sense on what Wall is thinking and, and what he could be waiting for to sign this deal and if he will indeed just not sign it? Well, I mean, I'm the one who first said that he was talking to him, that he was going to get an offer last uh, the designated right. player veteran extension offer last week after talking with the award show. And look, he didn't come out and say they needed to, to max out a quarter. I mean, he, he understands that they have decisions to make uh, to try to find the best way to improve the team, that that's what they're going to do. But at the same time, if they don't, like, he's, he's watching to see what they're going to do. I mean, I think anybody in his position would be, right? I mean, this, you know, he's a guy, he's played his whole career here. He's, he really is happy here. But he's entering the prime of his career, and he wants to make sure he's got a chance to compete for championships. And he's looking around and seeing what a lot of these other teams are doing. And I think he wants to see the Wizards make a similar kind of move. So, you know, I, I think if, if they don't match Otto, to me, the, the, where the rubber's really going to hit the road is next summer when DeMarcus Cousins is going to be a free agent. And I don't know if the Wizards are going to be able to get in the game with him or not, but I, I think that, you know, if he becomes a free agent, that's the, that seems like the one guy between now and 2019 with John is up that they could go get and really potentially transform this team. So, you know, whether they match Otto or not, I wouldn't be surprised if between now and then you hear a lot of talk about DeMarcus, uh, you know, being linked with the Wizards, given his relationship with John and, and the potential to give the Wizards that third star they're really going to need to become a, a true championship contender. Yeah, absolutely. Those two guys played together at Kentucky. They were together this weekend at Eric Bledsoe's wedding. And Bledsoe's another guy. Is he going to be on the block? And is there any way... Um, that I mean, I guess Washington doesn't really need him. Their backcourt's quite set. Um, but but is that a guy that could be changing teams before long uh, as Phoenix tries to go super young? And he's he's not super young anymore, although we're still obviously entering his prime. Uh, you know what? It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Bledsoe. They have, they have said they're going to go young. Um, they don't really have, you know, they've got Tyler Ewis uh, there to potentially play the point, even though he's, I think, more of a change of pace guy because he's about 5'9". Um, but, uh, yeah, Bledsoe's been on the block for a while. Wouldn't surprise me if somebody gets moved. The problem is there's just not a lot of teams that need a point guard. Uh, you you kind of go through, go around the league. I mean, look at George Hill right now, right? He doesn't really have a, a landing spot right now because there isn't a team that needs a point guard out there chasing after him. So, you know, I think when you, when you kind of survey the landscape and, and see how things are playing out, um, you know, it, it's kind of easy to, to look at it and say, um, you know, yeah, it would make sense for them to move on from Eric Bledsoe and kind of commit to this young core, Devin Booker and Josh Jackson. But um, if there's not really a landing spot that, that brings back value for him, it might make more sense to just keep him there and, and allow him to help those guys continue to grow. Yeah, makes sense. Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post. You can read him there. Tim, always appreciate the time, my man. Uh, enjoy Summer League coming up, and I'm sure we'll talk throughout the summer. Sounds good, Craig. Thanks, man. Grant Nanny on 106.7 The Fan. I'm neither Grant nor Danny, and neither is the man who joins me for the next half hour. I'm Craig Hoffman. Lorenzo Alexander is with me live from the den for the next half hour. What's up, Zoe? What's up, man? I don't know. I call it Studio Zoe on the podcast, but we, I think we should just start calling it the den, too. The yeah, den. the den. I mean, the den has a better ring to it, man. Yeah, I mean that's that's what your weight room is called right next door. So exactly, might as well just extend the den. It's a two room den. Exactly, it makes sense. So uh, before we recorded our podcast, Lorenzo, by the way, if somehow you do not do not know, was a uh, a special teams ace for the Washington Redskins for a long time, and then 
Uh, has played for the Cardinals and now plays for the Bills, where he made the Pro Bowl last year as a linebacker, sacked a bunch of quarterbacks and stuff. Uh, we also do a podcast together called the Train with the Best podcast. And before we recorded that the other day, we were talking about contracts and the NBA and the NFL and comparing the two. And um, there's a lot of people on Twitter is, is a lot of these NBA deals get signed. And it's an annual tradition at this point right. <laughs> where right. NFL players and people around the NFL go, this is ridiculous how much money those guys make. What, do you do any of that? Do you do any of like the kind of look out of your corner of your eye going like, man, that, that contract looks pretty nice? Um, not really. I mean, because it's, it's apples and oranges. I mean, you're comparing two different markets, two different um, types of salaries, cap structure. Um, and then uh, the biggest thing is the amount of guys that are on a team. So yeah. I can't be mad where they're splitting, you know, they're shared between 12 or 13 guys per team. And, and I'm, I'm essentially splitting it with 50 other two guys per team um, in the NFL. So it's yeah. just a totally different setup, totally different numbers. So it's really hard to compare the two. Now, looking at it, obviously, probably our game is more popular. Um, we bring in more revenue. So people are like, why? Why, why is it not? Why aren't guys getting big-time contracts like that in the NFL? I mean, they are, just not as big. I mean, I think the money is pretty good when you talk about quarterbacks and pass rushers and left tackles in this league. Yeah, no doubt. And we did the math yesterday. Um, 1,696 NFL players, if you just count the 53s, nevertheless, the the 60s or the 90s, um, depending on what time of year it is, uh, as opposed to 450 in the NBA. So you're exactly. talking about a different different number of players. Um, what, what is right now um, the, the split between, you know, uh, owners and players, though? that That is the one thing you can kind of uh Yeah, it is. Um, I'm going to say it's about 48%. I may be off, you know, a tad, tad there, here, there. Um, so it's, but, not, it's not 50-50 anymore. The owners do take more at this uh, point? They take slightly more. But okay. the, the, the difference is now that there are minimum spins, unlike in – in prior CBAs where, yeah, it was 50, but they didn't have to spend all the money. Now they have mm. to spend a certain amount of of the money. So now there's a, there's a floor that they can't go go uh, below over a span of several years where they have to average over, you know, a, a certain amount. And, and that is what is key because you can say, yeah, we get 50%, but if they're not paying nobody and you have teams that are historically cheap in the NFL that won't pay guys, it really doesn't matter. They end up just pocketing that money and kind of, you know, doing other things with it. So now that we have the floors, I think that's really an essential piece of um, something that we, we put in in the last CBA negotiations. Yeah, the NBA has that floor as well. And there's there's only been one team in recent memory in the NBA that got even close to that, the Sixers. And I remember uh, they wound up signing some veteran in, like, March, and that guy put them over the floor and all the other players on the team were probably mad. And in fact, it might have been JaVale McGee, actually, who they signed. <laughs> and all the what happens is if you don't spend to the floor, they just write a check and split it 15 ways. Yeah. And everyone else gets a little extra money because exactly. they, they have to get it. And so all the other players are like, what the hell, man? Like, we would have gotten an extra check and then they signed you. Um, so that's that's a fun. That had to be fun to walk into that locker room knowing you cost everybody money. Yeah, I guess. I mean, but at the end of the day, I ain't, I, I got to get mine too. So yeah. y'all can be mad, but I yeah. had to take care of me and my family. <laughs> uh, all right. So the the big thing I wanted to talk to you about, though, and we were kind of talking about this the other day, is the idea of trying to get some kind of guaranteed contract. And I, let me let's start with the ma- the super macro of like, could this ever get in a CBA? What would it take? 
to get some kind of guaranteed contract in an NFL CBA? Could well, let's, it actually happen? Let's start with this first. There okay. is no language in the NBA or the MLB that says their contracts have to be guaranteed. And there's no language in the NFL CBA that says a contract can't be guaranteed. It always comes down to leverage. And, and in some way in the NBA and the MLB, somebody started the trend and now it's become an adopted practice. Um, in the NFL, um, obviously, it's a little bit harder to do that because our, our, our sport is an impact sport, a collision sport. The injury rate is 100%. Um, but with that said, there are guys in this league that have the capability of of using that leverage, mainly probably quarterbacks. You know, you think of a Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers type. Um, so it's going to take probably one of those guys or one of those type of caliber players first to kind of get a deal going like that. And then once that happens, then the dominoes kind of fall because the next guy's going to come behind him and say, well, this guy got a guarantee, so I need this. Um, so right now our guaranteed money is, is, is predominantly our, our signing bonus. Um, so I, I guess that's how I'll answer that question. Yeah, no, um, I, and that that's interesting too. Um, and I guess even as much as I know about the NBA CBA, that I didn't realize that there it wasn't fully guaranteed. I mean, obviously there are some bonuses and things like that. But to me, like the guy who recently could have changed this was Andrew Luck. Here you are, a guy who is as touted as a prospect as you could possibly be coming out, does some pretty spectacular things in his first few years plays in a place that understands the value of continuity as they had Peyton Manning forever. And he could have, if he tells the Indianapolis Colts, I am not signing for anything less than hundred percent guaranteed. Eventually they would have had to give it to him or he would have went to the open market and gotten it. Do you think that a guy like that would feel that pressure that is even aware that like, Hey, I could be the one who changes this. Like what, what would it take for a guy to, to, to take that step? You know, I really don't know. I don't know Andrew that well, um, so I can't speak for him. I mean, I know at the end of the day in this league, you know, you're always playing a game of chicken and leverage and who has it, who doesn't. Um, obviously, we're seeing that being played out here locally as well. Um, right. But it just takes a guy that just wants to stand on the table and, 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 and wants to demand it. And I think it has to be a quarterback because those guys are not expendable um, like some other players may be because, you know, when you go to, like, the analytics, uh, quarterbacks have the biggest effect on games. You know, whether you have a Tom Brady or not, you know, the, the win differential is huge versus if you lose maybe a D tackle or, um, you know, a slot receiver that may be dominant, but they just don't have the same impact on the game. So it's definitely going to take a quarterback. Now, which one that wants to stand up and, and, and go through that uh, fight? I don't know. Um, but eventually it's going to have to be one of those guys if we probably want to see it be changed or, you know, which I never see it happening with the CBA because then we would have to give up something significant to get guarantees right, right. Um, in the negotiations. Um, how involved, like one of the things that's going on in the NBA right now and is that LeBron and Chris Paul, two of the biggest superstars in the league are the president and vice president. Uh, I have that reverse. Chris Paul is the president. LeBron's right. the vice president of the NBA PA. How many quarterbacks and big time players like that are involved in the highest levels of leadership that one of those guys might really care on that level about not just getting theirs, but getting everybody's. Um, I think we have pretty good leadership in all of our locker rooms. Um, I can't but think of... there's a difference of, between good leaders and, like, the guys yeah, I, that have that I mean, there, there have been guys, like, through, I mean, like, Drew Brees was um, sat on the executive committee for a long time. You know, so obviously a guy of that statue um, draws names. And we've had participation from other uh, big-time players that you're talking about. You know, your quarterbacks is mainly is what you're talking about. You know, you have Tom Brady that puts his names, names on lawsuits 
which I think has been significant for us uh, as far as getting certain uh, benefits through the court system and winning certain cases. Um, but nobody's really stood on the table trying to get a guaranteed contract. And, and I may be you know, speaking, you know, out of turn in that because I'm not in negotiation. So I don't know what people have asked for, um, but obviously nobody has, has gotten it quite yet. Yeah, definitely. It's it's interesting, too, because it's so hard. And I, I mean, you've had some interesting negotiations over the past couple of years, your last few deals. But it's it's so hard to be like, no, I'm going to stand on the table for it when someone is offering you 60 million guaranteed to go like, oh, no, I want more. Right. And that that pressure, like, I think it would take a kind of unique, and this is where a guy like Andrew Luck maybe would push back and say, like, look, I haven't been paid yet. Like, I True. got my rookie deal. Right, and I think it has to be a certain personality. And, I mean, I think certain guys in this league, if they had that type of leverage, would definitely exercise it. Um, but, you know, it's just everybody's each, each their own. Like you said, I mean, you have $60 million guaranteed in front of you. I don't think anybody's crying crying about that i mean that's a significant amount of money um you know our totality of our contracts just aren't aren't um guaranteed but you know at the same time there's give and take in this in this game our injury rate is also 100 percent. so you have to look at it from an owner's point of view as well um you know i've been a business owner so you know when you walk into these type of negotiations you try to see it from all vantage points and see where you can exploit it and you know, oftentimes they, you know, they throw that over your head, and it's and it's nothing that you can kind of you know right. uh, negotiate around because it's true. I well, mean, and so, also, also, you would think of it as like, man, if I get hurt, like how much, how much, how much can I really hold out? Like, if I'm not signing this one, and you know, this would go like if you're trying to work for an extension or something like that, you're already right. under contract. Like, it's hard to turn down that extension, knowing, oh man, I could have signed for this, but now I got hurt and I might not get any. Right, and that's what you're always, and that's what they use against you. You know, that fear factor. And that's why it's been so cool to watch Kirk kind of, you know, he's a quarterback. You know, quarterback's injury rate is probably a lot lower than than positional players. And just seeing how he's leveraged that and just continues to go out there, prove that he's he's worth what he says he's worth and continues to increase his market value because he continues to bet on himself and put up great numbers. Um, but most guys aren't, you know, don't have that type of edge to them where they can battle through that fear of, you know, you run down on the kickoff and try to, you know, make a big play, you get knocked out or get a knee blown out because of this the the the, the positions that you put on on a more consistent basis. Uh, I think that fear factor comes into a, a bigger of a play. So, it's like I said, it's going to take a quarterback because those guys tend to play 16 games, you know, outside of, you know, guys that may have a little bit more of a, a running aspect to their game. Right, right, for sure. All right, uh, let's talk maybe a little bit more about Kirk specifically next in the very unique position that he's in, and our phones are going off too, so maybe we'll take a couple calls as well. 800-636-1067. I'm Craig Hoffman. Lorenzo Alexander's with me here on 106.7 The Fan. We're in for Grant Danny. Craig Hoffman in for Grant Danny today on 106.7 The Fan. Lorenzo Alexander from the Buffalo Bills is with me this half hour. Lorenzo also my co-host on the Train With The Best podcast. You can go to either one of our Twitter pages to find a link to that. At One Man Gang 97 for Lorenzo. I'm at Craig Hoffman. So we were going to take a call here, and, th- and then as soon as we came out of the break, the call hung up. <laughs> of course, of course. Yay, it, it, live radio! That's how it always happens, right? Yep. If you want to get on uh, on the horn with me and Zoe, 800-636-1067. We're talking about contracts. And uh, you, you referenced Kirk directly a couple times when we were talking about some of the guaranteed contract uh, 
arguments uh, in the last segment. So let's talk about Kirk directly here. How unique, like, can you remember another player that it, that is pushed like this in a negotiation in your time in the league, now 13 years in the league? Um, not, not, especially not with a quarterback. And I don't know what you mean by pushed like this. I think I mean, it seems like quarterback, like there's, there's always like, Oh, I don't know if he'll sign. I don't know if he'll sign guys will hold out. And then eventually they, they, they wind up signing an extension. And the, the idea of actually getting to free agency for a quarterback specifically never seems to come to fruition. Like the one guy, right. like, one good like quarterback of Kirk Cousins caliber or better, who has made it to free agency in my memory of the NFL is Drew Brees. And it was because Phillip Rivers was ready to go and, he was and Brees' shoulder was a disaster. Right, and I can't think of any other quarterback who's been franchised twice either. Um, yeah. I think the biggest thing is this, you know, when you're negotiating, um, you know, how close are you? You know, um, you know, what are the numbers? What are you? What is he worth um, versus what um, the team thinks he's worth? And trying to close that gap as much as possible, um, and that's and that's what it is going back and forth. And right now, Kirk has all the leverage, um, in my opinion. I mean, because obviously he's going out there and continue to prove that he can play at a high level. Um, took him to the playoffs. Obviously, they missed it last year, um, but his play was, I thought, was solid throughout the entire year. And people keep trying to put, you know, he doesn't win the big games, but it is a a team game, the ultimate team game. And there's really no one person who can go out there and just take over a game and just win it for him without having great defense, great special teams, guys around them catching the ball, guys around them blocking, um, in order them for them to be great. And with all that said, he still put up huge numbers. Yeah. Um, so, and he's, he's statistically one of the top guys in the league, respected by all his teammates, fans love him. So at the end of the day, you have to pay, pay the man with the market yields. And, you know, with a Derek Carr deal that just came out, and I, I will put Kirk in that same breath um, as him, um, you know, so it's going to be somewhere in that ballpark. Um, and, at the, and, and it's all on the team whether or not they want to pay him. And if they don't, then he goes to free agency, and then he gets to decide where he wants to go. Yeah, well, that's the, the the question I wanted to ask you. You kind of just answered it. You said he's in that same ilk as, as a Derek Carr. What... When, I mean, you've played him last year and the last two years, right? Uh, you guys have played back-to-back years. So you've studied him uh, in, in game prep. Like, where do you put him in the echelon of quarterbacks in the league? Like, how good is Kirk Cousins? You you would know. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, guys, you know, you can move guys around. I would say he's right there on the cusp of, you know, being in the top ten, moving around somewhere in that top ten. Uh, you know, eight or nine, and, and he's probably not higher because he hasn't won uh, championships like some of those other guys who he probably will eventually surpass once he starts getting to the playoffs, and, and hopefully they, you know, he wins a championship um, here with the team. Um, and that's probably the only real default, and he's continuing to get better. What is this? He's going into his third year fully starting. Yeah, third year is a start. Um, and I think people miss out on that. Aaron Rodgers didn't play until his fifth, fifth year in the league. Um, so you have to give guys a chance to develop, and he's come out of the, the gates rolling. So uh, you got to continue to build around him. I think that's one of the, 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 the biggest issues um, the organization or the Redskins have had over the, over the years is just having no continuity, you know, whether that's head coach, players, quarterback play. I mean, when I was here, we had, what, six or seven guys? Yeah. So now that you have a guy that is a young gun in this league, has obviously established himself as a rising star, um, may have not have won all the big games that you want him to win, but it's a team game. But he's getting better each year. And uh, if you know Kirk at all, he's meticulous about um, his grind, his game, 
uh, how to how to increase or improve guys around him, uh, his talent, and uh, that's what you want. You want a great leader. Um, so going into his third year, he's going to again this year. I, you know whether or not he's he he signs a new deal or not, it's going to get better. Um, uh, the the team is going to be better, I think as well because there's been some continuity now, and he's going to find himself in the playoffs and prove everybody, uh, you know. Right or wrong, depending on what side of the the aisle you're standing on right now. Yeah, but uh, I, I'm fully behind him. He's he's one of the good ones in his league and and is young in his career and is going to continue to get better. An endorsement from a guy who's played 13 years in the league and uh, not NBA made the Pro Bowl last year. <laughs> I look up on TV for one second and my ADD goes bonkers. Uh, let's just go to the phones. Let's let other people talk and ask us questions. Uh, let's go to Brian in Winchester. Brian, you're on the fan. Thanks for calling. You're on with Craig and Lorenzo. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Lorenzo, hey, hey, all the Redskins. Been a Redskins fan a long time. Hey, what's going hey, on? Um, I, oh, you know, just want to work. Hey, I, I respect the, the bargain table and position of the union and the owners and the players. Um, I understand how the union came about. But with all that said, in Washington, you know, we're scarred by the memory of Albert Hainsworth laying on the field get paid $60 million. So okay. how, how does that kind of play into the – whenever I hear guaranteed contract, that's what I'm thinking. Okay, now a guy's going to get guaranteed money. He's not going to have the effort to play. Um, I hear that sentiment, but guys are cut from a different elk. I mean, you know, that's one guy. And if you if the team would have done their due diligence and their background check like they normally do versus just being excited about getting a player – um, maybe they would not have given them yeah. that much money. I mean, but if you pay me, I'm going to still go through out there and run through walls. I'm I'm the same guy when I came in this league and was trying to find myself on a team and lost his helmet and made tackles and became Scarface, essentially. They gave me a chance to play. And now that I've gotten, you know, I have a three-year, $3 million per year contract, I'm the still same guy that's going to go out there, play special teams, play defense, run through guys, be a leader. I think you can't, you can't put everybody in the same bucket once they get paid, they, they sit down. I mean, we have countless guys in this league that you can point to that don't lay on the field but get play, paid at a high premium dollar. Um, you can go around to each team and, and pick four or five guys that got high paid, making $10 million a year, but go out there and ball hard and play yeah. and play um, like the game should be played. So I think that's an, an outlier. Um, you can, And definitely I wouldn't put Kirk in that same no, um, no, for sure. breath and, at all. By the way, though, on the other end of the coin, there's also guys who try really hard to get paid a lot of money and just flat out can't play like they lose it they they get old or they get injured like that's part of the deal and guarantee yeah that contracts. too i don't know if that happened in that case what he's talking about oh, no, he's talking about not, guys my just point is that, you like, know right if, if you're if your concern about guaranteeing contracts is it doesn't guarantee production well no kidding Right, yeah. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, a lot of things can happen. You get hurt. I mean, you can lose a step. I mean, you could have a bad year. I mean, you see that in the NBA, too. You, I mean, you see guys, the way it's structured in their league, that you have role players essentially getting max deals. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, do those guys deserve it? You know, I don't know based on uh, their role, but because the money is there and the team has to spend it, they get, the, they get those deals. And, I'm, you know, kudos to them. Um, but the same thing goes for the uh, for for our league. I mean, guys get paid and they go out there and try to play the hardest they can. I mean, I hate when I see fans, you know, oh, he got he's a waste of like guys are just out there just trying to play bad. Yeah. Everybody that I've majoritively have been around, I mean, you have the one percenters that uh, 
don't care. They just play because they want to get paid. Um, have a lot of pride in this game, regardless of their paycheck. Because when we go out there, nobody's checking checking on their mobile phone to see how much money they have in the bank uh, before they go play a game. You know, they line up next to their teammates, looking at each other guys in the eyes, and want to go out there and be dominant and play at a high level. Yeah, it's a, a group of very prideful men that play in the NFL, and, and there's no doubt that no matter what they're being paid, they want to go out there and compete. Uh, for the name on the front of the jersey and the name on the back of it. So I will see you later this week, my friend. Uh, thanks for hopping on with us, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. I right, appreciate you, brother. That's Lorenzo Alexander, Buffalo Bills Pro Bowl linebacker with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. Kevin Arnovitz from ESPN.com on NBA Free Agency next. When you look at where uh, we are with the league right now, we're obviously all waiting on Gordon Hayward do you think Gordon Hayward signing in either Boston or Miami is enough to change the landscape of the Eastern Conference? Is he that caliber of player? I think he thinks he would make things very interesting in Boston. Um, they were a 53-win team last season. They are going to be bringing in a you know they would be bringing in a, a top 20, 25 player in Hayward. Uh, also in Tatum, they they have a you know a potentially a, an NBA ready wing who can create a, along with Hayward. I mean, I, I think they're interesting if if any misfortunes befall the Cleveland Cavaliers and uh, you know Cleveland's so difficult to handicap because they'll sleepwalk through the season. We think they're vulnerable defensively, and then they'll just sort of walk through the Eastern Conference playoffs. But I, I do think with Hayward, Boston becomes a lot more interesting. I, I don't know if I would handicap them as as I, in fact, I suspect they would win the one seed. I mean, the question is, what could they do in a seven-game series? Uh, in Miami, it, it, it serves to kind of getting Miami ready to get off the mat. They were 41-41 last season, overachieved wildly with a, a talent that just kind of makes you squint. How did that team get to 500? You know, but they could start building around Hayward. It's still a very attractive destination. It's a very appealing organization to a lot of players. Um, it's a place you want to play. There's no income tax, all the others. So, you know, Miami is never more than a couple of years away from being a title contender, it seems. And that's been true really since Pat Riley's been around. Um, so, you know, does he make a difference there? Probably not in year one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, the East has nothing right now. Um, it is amazing just how much talent has been diverted west. And uh, so, so, you know, any difference maker can kind of make some noise there. Yeah, I mean, you, you harken back to a couple of years ago when all eight playoff teams in the West were 50-win teams, and you, I believe, had a 49-win Phoenix team that got left out that year, which is also a weird team to look back on because we thought they were going to be terrible, and now they've, they've gone full circle to being terrible. But when you look at the Wizards' place in the Eastern Conference in that nothingness, have they somehow had a good summer in that there's less competition around them? Or are they just kind of going to be what they are with no real way up? You know, it's funny, uh, you know, to your point, staying pat all of a sudden in the East, it probably improves, you know, Atlanta, Washington beat them last offseason or last postseason, you know, sort of out of the picture. Um, you know, Toronto sort of spent a fortune to re-sign everybody. Um, you know, I, I think the Wizards are still interesting. I think there's still a notion that Beal's getting better, um, that Wall, you know, is still finding his outside shot, which has always been regarded as, as sort of you know, Achilles' heel, that, that Porter made a leap last year, and if they do decide to retain him, would make, you know, continue to get better, being, you know, learn how to be a pick-and-roll player on the wing. Um, you know, he'll get better defensively. Uh, but, uh, you know, are they who they are? I, I think to some extent there was there was a little percolating excitement that maybe they'd get in on this Paul George sweepstakes, but 
Um, yeah, I mean, this is, I don't want to say they have a ceiling, because I do think that they do have a, a cadre of young players who can each get better marginally. Um, and, and have we seen the full genius that is John Wall? I, you know, I, 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 I don't know. But I think they should be hosting a first-round playoff series next season, yes. Yeah, I think they should be, too. Um, and the question moving forward with them is what can they possibly do to try to get in on the next superstar that becomes available. They just have so little cap flexibility, and they have some decisions to make. It's going to cost them max money to retain Otto Porter. And while it seems like a no-brainer because they can't then go spend that money elsewhere because they're they're going over the, the line to sign him, over the cap line and actually over the tax line to sign him, in the long run, like if you're looking to make some changes, you gotta you gotta start that process somewhere. Would you consider starting it with Otto Porter? Is he too good and too young for you, even if you have to pay him that amount of money? I, I mean, this is and this is sort of the problem with the Max in general. Is you know, as you said, they're one of these use it or lose it teams. You can't. It's not like you can say, oh, let's not spend the $25 million on retaining Porter, we can go spend that money on a better player or two better players. We'd be better off taking that 25 and doing this. You don't get that 25. What the league allows you to do is spend that kind of money to retain your own guys. But it doesn't allow you then say, oh, but in lieu of that, let's go get talent. Let's use that money next summer when, oh, I don't know, so-and-so is, is, is a free agent and, and he's a top-10 player. And so what the Max does is it really hurts teams like Washington or Memphis, for that matter, like you know, Mike Conley, up until a couple of days ago, had the richest contract in the league. Now, you and I both love Mike Conley. Like, I love mm-hmm. that guy. He's a great player. But is he the best? Like, he's making more money than anybody, more than LeBron, more than KD. And what happens is they, by capping this maximum salary for superstars, you end up in a world where the Cavs are paying LeBron and the Warriors are playing, paying Curry. Um, and Oklahoma City is paying Russell Westbrook the same amount as Conley, Porter, um, and players who get the max um, but really aren't worth what those other players are worth, who are truly worth, you know, an open market, Steph Curry makes $75 million. So you get, let the Warriors get him essentially at a 50%, 60% discount, whereas Washington is paying full value for, for Otto Porter. And that's problematic. And now if you're Washington, you have your money tied up in these three guys, all of whom are really, really nice players. But would you put that trio up against, say, the three best guys on the Warriors or the Cavs or now the Rockets? And the answer is no, and this is how you become the ninth best team in basketball, which Washington probably is, or 10th or whatever, rather than the first, second, or third. And this is sort of the unintended consequences of an intricate salary cap system that kind of screws teams that have a lot of pretty, pretty good players, but don't have just a top 10 guy. Which then begs the question, is Kevin Arnovitz from ESPN.com is with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. What breaks that cycle? And that's something I've thought about for years, and I've never been able to come up with a good answer. I mean, obviously, you could smash it with a sledgehammer by eliminating the max contract, and then it's a free-for-all, and who knows what happens. But, like, is is there a team that would actually have the gusto to say, like, no, we're not paying our third-best player who's not close to as good as LeBron James the same amount of the salary cap percentage-wise as LeBron James? way around it and Washington hasn't frankly done it which is how did the Warriors get where they were well they you know they found a guy in the second round named Draymond Green 
you know, who by some, some, some sort of advanced measures might be one of the five best players in basketball when you take into account everything that he does on the floor, uh, including defense. You know, you become the San Antonio Spurs. I mean, yes, they, 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 they nailed Tim Duncan with a lottery in 1997, but since then, you know, drafted a, a, a Tony Parker at the end of the first round, Mono Ginobili in the second round. I mean, go on and on. Jonathan Simmons writes a check to the team so he can try out, becomes, you know, one of their better playoff performers. And, and there's nothing on that team other than that's how you overachieve. And it's not to, look, Walls played well, Beals played well. All those guys are top three, four, five picks, those three guys. And that's great. you got to nail those picks. But what you have to do in order to compete to compensate for the fact that LeBron is making as much as your best guy and how do you possibly compete with that is you have to find below market value guys. And, and frankly, the Wizards have not been a team that's done that exceptionally well. You know, you don't look on the roster and say, oh, wow, we had that guy on his rookie deal. You know, like, and again, these aren't guys who, who, who are absolute difference makers, but you, know, you look around the league at the teams that have overachieved, like Utah, and there's a Rodney Hood and a Rudy Gobert drafted, I think, 22nd and 27th, maybe, respectively. And, and you know, you go around. It's where the Clippers have sort of, you know, share a little bit with the Wizards. Like, they have this great big three. They have two kind of superstars. And then, you know, until Chris Paul left, and then they had DeAndre Jordan, who, if you will, is sort of the big man of Otto Porters, right, making his max yep. deal. And but they never really did anything other than that, right? They never found that Draymond Green. They never found the, you know, they, they had Joe Ingles and gave him up, right? Like, and the Wizards are going to have to do that. Like, this is the challenge for them. Like, how do the Wizards catapult themselves up? They're going to have to nail some late first round picks, some early second round picks, find these Simmons types and, and you know, these guys who, who you find in the bargain bin. Danny Green is another guy like that for San Antonio, right? Like, he was cut by Cleveland twice when they were bad Cleveland, when they were like post LeBron Cleveland, right? Like he shows up on a, on a, on a make good, like, you know, and, and that's sort of the thing that these teams do to become a team that has three really, really good guys, but who can't compete with those big, you've got to fill in at the margins. And that's the next test for the Washington Wizards organization is how can we improve on the margins? How can we find, you know, what Atlanta did a couple of years ago with Damari Carroll, like cut three times, sign him to a $2 million a year deal. Then the guy goes, gets paid, you know, elsewhere for 15 million. Like you got to have those guys take, be the team that has the flexibility to take the salary dump. Um, and then you right. can play that guy, a team that just has to get rid of salary. So they, they get rid of a good $6 million a year guy. They just need to get off the books. And, you know, it, that's the sort of thing. And now they're not going to have the flexibility to do that kind of stuff, but they are, you know, in the next couple of years, they're going to need to nail some of these picks. That all makes sense and is a good answer and is a good solution if you can do it. Let me reframe the question, though, to, to this. Is there ever going to be a point where the market corrects, where LeBron James is worth the max and Otto Porter isn't, where all of the teams go, we're done playing, paying role players the max money, or is simply because it takes one to screw it all up, that never going to happen? I don't think it's, I mean, here's, here's why it doesn't happen. Look, LeBron would love it to happen. Steph Curry would love it to happen. There are 15 guys in the league who would love that. Um, a union is represents several hundred players, and if you remain in a cap system, so let's say it's still $99 million, which is, and just for your listeners whose eyes are glazing over right now, uh, <laughs> that, that's generally the budget of a team. Like, they're allowed to spend $99 million on payroll. Now, they go above that to do things like retain auto porter. Like, you can go above that with certain qualifications. But by and large, there's a set amount of money, right? There's a pool of money. Every team 
roughly equal, you get to spend. So if you keep that system and say, okay, there are no maximum salaries for LeBron's, John Wall's, Kevin Durant's, all the max guys, you can pay them whatever you want up until, frankly, $90 million, probably, because then you have a million, you know, $9 million left for, you know, and then these numbers are rough. What that would do is you would disperse the talent. You would have a situation where, you know, first of all, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant wouldn't be on the same team. LeBron and Kyrie Irving wouldn't be on the same team, like unless one of those guys is willing to take literally tens of millions of dollars less than they're worth. So what you'd have is, by and large, the 30 best guys would be dispersed on probably the 25, te- 25 different teams, right? Like, like you just would have a more a higher distribution of, of, of talent because unless, again, they're willing to really compromise, you know, LeBron's not going to be on a team with another top 30 player. Like, same with Kevin Durant, same with Steph Curry. John Wall probably isn't on a team with another top 20 guy. And because who's going to, they can't afford it. And so you have these other teams who don't have access to those guys, whether because their market or, or whatever other reason, they can go out and get some very, very good $15 million players that are truly $15 million players. And I think that's what happened. Otto Porter probably doesn't make $25 million because now there's not enough cash. Otto's now probably back in a world where he's making $15 million, $14 million. But the reason that never happens is the union takes a vote. And if you get rid of the maximum salary, who votes I? Steph Curry, LeBron James, Chris Paul, you know, all those guys. And then there's another 350 guys who are like, hell no. Because <laughs> if LeBron gets made seven, makes 70 instead of $35 million, where does that other $35 million come from? The answer is it comes from the mid-level player. Right. Right. Uh, I guess, and the, as I said, on the ownership side of it, it, they're never going to just be like, no, we're not paying that much for that guy because eventually they're bidding against each other and they want the player. So, all right, so here we are with our funky system, and we go through craziness every July. Luckily, you keep answering your phone when I call every July. I appreciate it, Kevin. No, thanks for having me. Kevin Arnovitz, ESPN.com. You should read his work there because it's fantastic. All of the podcasting is now complete for this week. Thanks for checking out The Best Of. Again, this was a part two with all of the interviews. If you want more of just me solo, some thoughts on a variety of topics, there's a part one in this very podcast feed, no matter if you are listening in SoundCloud or iTunes or any other place you seem to have found this podcast. Also, all of those places, you can hear the Train with the Best podcast. Big, big announcement. We will have Derek Carr, Oakland Raiders quarterback, on that podcast. That'll be up on Friday. Thanks for listening to this one. I'll see you next time. Goodbye.